Hello and welcome to Darker Days episode number 30. I am one of your hosts, Mike, and I'm of course joined by Mark and Chris. Hey guys, uh, another one of your hosts here. <laughs> and here's the third one for an un- unholy trinity, I'm sure. Cool, okay. Yeah, we should, so, we should come in six packs, but a trinity is good too. So. Uh, Mike, what are we covering uh, this time? Well, we're going to be covering a couple things. Uh, first off, there's actually some news that we missed from the uh, from Gen Con, and we're going to cover that oh. a little bit. Uh, we're going to be, uh, of course, having some discussion of V20, which just came out. The PDF has now been released. And, of Yay. course, the Mage Chronicler's Guide. Mm-hmm. Outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah, um, massive shockwaves echoing through uh, through the White Wolf fandom with the, with the release of V20, um, rippling backward and forward in time, most likely. Um, yeah, very, very good. So I'm busting with excitement to get onto that one. Nothing in the mailbag this week, I understand? Nope, nothing. But uh, Mark, if people want to send us something, uh, an email, where they send it to? That would be darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Outstanding. Uh, you can also uh, hit us up on Facebook, Darker Days Radio, and also on Twitter uh, with the same, Darker Days Radio. And uh, Chris, you've been um, setting up some posterous material for, uh, for our listeners too. Yeah, I mean, um, basically because how Facebook, as everyone knows, we ha- do have a Facebook presence, is, um, well, Facebook is going through numerous changes, which is obviously the XR's reworking realities to make it a far greater contraption to control us all. So I thought, let's use something that's a bit more free council-like. And um, I basically post up a few things from uh, my posthumous blog, and they're kind of just like, you know, some advice things and, and some ideas and some examples, some actual play. And I am totally open, um, and I'm sure you guys are open, uh, to anyone asking us questions, because, I mean, if it's something that we can't really... That's maybe we've already covered in a previous podcast, or we want to cover at some point, but we don't have the time yet because we've got other things to do. Uh, I'm more than happy to answer questions and write stuff. And Phosphorus has a ve- fairly nice thing where people and listeners can, can have a read, and you can they can respond to us and respond to others. And that also means if the listeners out there have some ideas, hints, or and so forth they want to uh, put forward, we can use it as a uh, repository of, of arcane information, and we can post it up and people can read it. So, uh, yeah. Excellent. Cool, cool. Good stuff. Um, so just to get started, let's move on to White Wolf News. All right, so of course, uh, we all know that V20 is currently out, and on Eddie Webb's White Wolf blogcast, he mentioned that uh, they're looking into doing print-on-demand for V20, just to get the content out to everyone. What they're looking at doing right now is soft-cover, full-color books, and there's actually going to be two of them. They're going to split it down the middle, because their print-on-demand printer just can't do a 500-page full-color book. And I wouldn't really want to buy one either. I mean, a book that big, it's probably not going to hold up that well. Mm. So it sounds really cool, and I have to say that I'm really excited for this. If they split it up between like a storyteller book and a uh, character or kind of like rule book that has mm. all the basic rules in it, because that way I would definitely pick up a rule book 
so I wouldn't have to lug around the nice, pristine, you know, limited edition copy to games. Well, that's yeah. Thing. That's... I, I, I was figuring out, you know, I'd pick up the uh, the all-in-one hardback, but so the idea you're you're thinking it might be possible they're not going to split it just you know down the middle, but actually separate it thematically, like a kind of player's handbook, <laughs> storyteller's guide. That'd be interesting, actually. That'd be kind yeah, of fun. yeah. I think it's already kind of set up like that. Even if they do split it down the middle, most of the core rules and like the uh, the basic thirteen clans are in the first half. Um, and then most of the storyteller stuff in the rare bloodlines are in the second half. So it might even work out if they just split it down the middle. Oh, cool. That's pretty cool. That, yeah, the, the fact that it is going to be available for print. And also, I'll say this, actually. Um, having a book like that, if it's everything split in the right way, makes it really useful in gaming groups. There are times when you're passing around a book, you're like, I need to have the rules, but player want to read. player wants to read something out of the other part of the book, and... It may make that more uh, usable, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, handy. So, uh, so, did both of you guys pre-order the uh, the limited edition, or I didn't pre-order V20, mm-hmm. but I'll uh, be picking up the PDF. That's for sure. What about you, Mike? Yeah, I pre-ordered it. Uh, I was a little hesitant about it, but now that I've actually got it. Extremely happy. It's yeah. phenomenal looking, and we'll be talking about that later on in the show. Cool. Uh, but that's that's not all they have uh, on the on the upcoming schedule. Uh, there's a bit of a revival of the classic World of Darkness line, uh, this Onyx mm. Path that we're hearing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was what's first up on the schedule? Is it Hunters Hunted Two? I seem to recall. Uh, no, I think the first thing that's going to be coming out is the V20 Companion, um, oh, right. and that's already in development with Justin Achille, and he's live on Twitter and he's at the White Wolf blog slash v20 companion i believe is there's a a new development blog for that didn't he resign already and like move to france or something he's still working on it yeah (laughs) (laughs) he can't get away nope what i thought was interesting about the uh the v20 companion was that they've that they set aside a dedicated amount of uh, pages for uh fan created content stuff that's going to come up during this open development process which uh uh, fascinating idea really that's pretty wicked that yeah it'll be interesting to see what players what uh the people out there do come up with what makes it great yeah yeah mm. definitely i mean just looking at the v20 development there was a huge amount of content just for how to rework botches and get those to work more effectively in the game system so we could even see pages and pages about that how to rework it uh just yeah in the v20 development there was a lot of good stuff that came out of it which isn't in the new book that just came out yeah. but I think we're going to see it in the future. Well, what struck me about, um, and this is particularly true of the revised era books of Classic World of Darkness, things like, uh, you know, and the Mage Storyteller's Guide is a, uh, Mage the Ascension Storyteller's Guide is a standout example of this. Uh, the Werewolf one as well. Um, just these, these Storyteller Storyteller guides that really broke the system open because they've been going for 10 years by then, you know, and, and kind of almost uh, uh, foreshadowed the toolkit approach of New World of Darkness. So seeing something that, continues to deliver that kind of approach those multiple options and here's different ways to fold and spindle and mutilate your game seeing that for uh, for the for the, the seawad <laughs> would be good mm-hmm. more more than merrier absolutely and then next up they're going to be coming out with children of the revolution which is really a sequel to the quite old children of the inquisition book which had such luminaries as I believe the first Hardestat and uh, and Vlad Tapis. Yep. So a lot of like NPCs, and it's gonna follow Karsh and those guys. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's gonna follow in the footsteps of that book, which should be pretty interesting. Cool, because the, the original one I don't think even had any stats in it. If I if I if I'm remembering right, Children of the Night had stats, but 
for mm. some of them, most of the vampires, but I don't think Children of the Inquisition did. I couldn't tell you. I've never read it. Oh, I've got to say, I had a, had to be in my hands, and it's it's oh, it's outside. It's not the normal size of a, of a standard book. So mm-hmm. this huge kind of almost coffee table thing. It's not particularly thick. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Nah, I'm not going to need that. You know, and I've regretted it every <laughs> bloody time I've thought about the book since. So uh, lesson learned there. Get it when it's going. Mark, it make me feel bad because I saw it in the store and I said, uh, no, I'll get. I don't know what I got, but uh, it's not there anymore." Well, that was the thing that I—that was the thing that prompted me to pre-order V20. I really thought, I'm, you know, I've got the books. I don't really need it. Um, you know, there's a few tweaks would be nice. And then I thought, yeah, but if I don't get it, the guilt is going to kill me. <laughs> so it's more, <laughs> you know, damage limitation than anything else. You know, it makes it more likely that they'll do a mage <clears> or these we buy. So. Yeah, I think I'm I'm gonna have to hope for uh, you know obviously mage because what with my current situation it's like I can't have more books because the whole moving country thing I'm just looking at my entire collection and I'm having to actually thin it down. Ouch! I've just got to I've just got to hope some poor bastard might sell his V20 sometime down the uh, down the uh, years and I pick it up and for a good price. Well, but that's the that's can... the price you make make with uh, decisions like this and you know exactly. one-off books like these. You have to uh, choose what to get and well, Mage 20 will be is if I'm going to have to write anything of importance, it will be made anniversary. Exactly, exactly. Well, mind you, you can hop on eBay right now, and there are three copies of V20 going for between <laughs> three and, three and six hundred dollars each. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's that's yeah, that's pretty amazing that they're already that's on there. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sure a couple of people bought extra copies just to stick on eBay and make some money. Two copies of that, and you're going to pay for your your initial copy and your convention ticket and most of your hotel bill. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. But the big deal, third on the list, Hunters Hunted 2.0. Yes. Finally. Cannot wait. So um, what do you think that's going to be the main draw for that one? Is it the idea they're going to uh, have to readdress a lot of the things that Hunters would do in in the classic World of Darkness setting? What with that, that... the world's moved on. Probably see some, some mortals rules. Mm. Yep, yep. The big draw for me is that, you know, we've changed a lot since Hunters Hunted, the first one. I mean, if you go back and read that book, it's it's old. It feels like it was a uh, very early 90s, definitely. Especially with some of the characters. They're very, like... Uh, You've got these super-powered ghoul, like, super soldiers, and then you've got, you've got, you know, the vampires hunting other vampires. One of the cool things, actually, looking back, is that it has the first instances of, uh, of mages and lupines, yeah. and yeah. Uh, mm. I think it hints about fairies. I think the mage that they have in there, um, who's really more of a hedge wizard, to be honest, he has, like, uh, fairy and ghost allies, which is kind of interesting. It, cool. it was this sort of weird book. I'd say, because it kind of offers a glimpse of what's to come. Yeah. But it's more about the uh, mortal hunters themselves. Well, I love looking at some of those really early vampire books, you know, it's particularly the ones that were released before Werewolf or Major or any of the other games came out. Specifically for, like, you know, for what you say, the examples they give of, well, here's a way that you could use mages in your game. Here's a way of looking at werewolves. You know, and the rules are completely different and bear little resemblance whatsoever to what later came out. But there's mm-hmm. this kind of you know, this kind of aged charm about them. Like, here's a way to do werewolves using only vampire disciplines. Oh, great. <laughs> That's good fun. Yeah. 
Yeah. Be nice. One of the best things is looking at how demons evolved through all the different game lines because you have the Sabbat mm. infernalism because originally they were supposed to be demonic and then it came out that they weren't so much and in fact they rooted it out through the Inquisition. Yep. There's some mention in fact in Hunter's Hunted the first one of I think that same mage has some uh, infernal associations and all the other different kind of stuff. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, all well, the various kinds of demons is the ones in Vampire. There's about two or three, three or four different kinds in Mage. And there's a couple of different ones in Wraith that could, you know, the creatures from the far, far realms, from the far shores. Uh, werewolves got demon creatures coming out of the Wazoo. So, yeah. <laughs> and then you've got, of course, the, the, the Fallen, you know, from, from the Demon the Fallen game. Yeah, kind of have enough demons, that's what I say. Looks good. Absolutely. And I really hope that in Hunter's Hunted 2.0, they have the imbued, the hunters from Hunter the Reckoning, because the uh, rules yeah. for them are fairly simple, and I think they could do them justice just in that little book. Well, that's the big question, isn't it? And a few people have pointed out that in V20, at the back, there's little templates for lupines and for mages, and uh, I don't know, for wraiths, I can't remember. But a few people have pointed out that the imbued are conspicuous by their absence. Like They don't even get a mention. Um, so whether they're being safe for Hunters Hunted 2, or whether they've just been... Hand waved away is yeah. yes, po- po- post reckoning nonsense. We don't want to hear about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll see. I guess. I guess we'll see. I think one of the most exciting things the way they're going forward with V twenty and and classic world of darkness is that it's almost as if they they can now accept what they wrote for you know the end of world of darkness back in you know two thousand one and so forth when they did those books. Is now they can. Um, they they can just put those forward as that was one possible end, and now they have this wonderful chance to to do quite a lot of good retconning to uh, to allow these settings to now become living and breathing again, with yeah. the apocalypse somehow delayed to as the player sees fit, rather than based upon how they tied it in so heavily to you know 2012 and all that stuff. Exactly. Well, V20 contains a, a good example of, of how they're approaching that, but I guess we'll come on to that in more detail in a minute. Indeed. I think that's it for the news, unless something else has come out. I mean, we've had tons of news about the, the Grand Masquerade, of course, and I think we're going to cover that in a future show, uh, just talking about all the MMO news and the uh, mm. the new outlook by White Wolf that we're kind of feeling. Um, that should be pretty cool. So with that, I guess that's it for the news, and let's move on over to the Secret Frequency Okay, Secret Frequency, and on this episode we're going to be taking a look at immortal, supernatural, and very strange alchemists, specifically starting off way back down in the 10th century with the Comte Arnau. Now, Chris, uh, you did an interesting amount of research on this, um, and it also ties in neatly with some uh, published World of Darkness material, so that should be fun. We're also joined on today's Secret Frequency by a very special guest, Philomena Young. Uh, Welcome aboard, Philomena. Hi, guys. Hello. Uh, okay. <laughs> we're expecting we're expecting Mike, but we better say for everyone listening that uh, Mike will be Mike, Mike is slightly suffering, so he'll be intermittent and in saying things when he has something groundbreaking to say for us. So, Mike, yeah, the comp that are now, yeah, t- tell me about him, Chris. Uh, what did you okay. discover? Well, I kind of um, was looking for something based upon my trip to Barcelona recently, and after a bit of searching around, I found the. Comte Arnau, or Count Arnau, uh, which is a Catalan myth. It's an interesting one. It ties in 
with, as you say, this alchemist who shares uh, a, the same family name. But the Count is interesting as he is apparently, he apparently never existed. As the legend goes, he was a cruel lord obsessed with hunting. Peasants fled his land and he killed his wife by riding out too fast, knocking her over. All she wanted to do was stop him going out hunting on Good Friday. Now the Count was feared by his peasants and those in his lands for one particular reason. If he could not find anything to hunt, any good sport, he would hunt men and women and children. So when the, his death finally came, St. Peter was there at the pearly gates, preventing him from entering heaven. St. Peter said, well, you certainly can't get into heaven. Your sins are darker than the blackest night. Now, this was a problem for the Count, but then he also had, uh, well, kind of an ace up his sleeve on this. The devil could not take his soul either. The Count's wife, even in death, even considering how she died, still loved him. And this very thing prevented the Count from going to hell while he could not go into heaven. And so, as the folklore goes, he now races across the sky on stormy nights astride a fiery steed, chasing storm clouds and throwing spears of lightning. And following, following his horse are uh, uh, a number of uh, dogs and hounds. But there are a few other things with this legend. Other things attributed to this, uh, this cruel count is that he had an affair with a nun at the Abbey of Saint-Jean d'Abedes and at the same, outside the same abbey there is a plaza with a statue of him even though he never existed. Other interesting things about the abbey is that the abbey was founded by the Catalonian founding father who was called Wilfred the Hairy. Uh, an interesting point to say about Wilfred um, is that he was very hairy. You see any statues of him in Barcelona? He is carved with swirls of hair all over his body. You think it's chainmail? No, that's hair. Um, oh, wow. Actually, not just on his head and face. No. Um, other things is that, um, to go off on a little uh, side myth about uh, Wilfred the Hairy, is that it's from the, his uh, stories and the staunching of his wounds that a, um, the French lord who helped them drive out the Moors from, uh, from the area that became Catalonia and Barcelona. That French lord drew his four bloody fingers down a yellow shield and that is why that crest is linked to Barcelona and Catalonia. Finally, to finish off with the Count, um, Count Arnau is also related to leading the wild hunt. Thus he is one of the dead or the fae that hunts mortals at night, and this so links him with his French equivalent of Heliquin or Harlequin. So, Mark, you were going to follow up with the fact that there is another fellow that shares the name of Arnau. Yeah, I'll get onto him in just a second. I was I was interested in a few points of uh, of this particular count, and specifically the way that his well his existence is dubious or, or, or not at all, but also yeah. the way that he's become blurred with folklore, uh, almost like he's an amalgamation of a number of archetypal or mythical figures. Now, I, yes. I love the parallel there with the Norse gods, you know, riding across yes. the mountains, you know, kind of sniping your imagery and chasing storms and throwing lightning bolts. And also, like you just said, um, the, the wild hunt uh, from mm -hmm. Celtic myths. So it's an interesting kind of mix there. Well, another thing that struck me was, you know, I noted how you mentioned his his wife's love kept him from descending into hell. 
And mm. as soon as I read this, I just thought, Fetter. It makes yes. he would make a great antagonist in Wraith. Um, you know, if he kept his wife alive, uh, you'd give the characters the added dilemma of, well, if we want to remove this guy's final fetter and bar him from the Shadowlands, we need to kill his wife. Um, yes. So, you know, you can kind of set up a dilemma there. Or even more interestingly, if she's actually dead already, what are you going to do about that? You know, if his if his fetter is another ghost. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, if you want to go for the the plainly obvious things of way that you, ways that you can use him, he is either a one of the gentry, one of one of yeah. the fae from Changing the Lost. And that's a that's a very easy thing to use, and that's why um, I'll be making use of not him, but the idea of Heliquin uh, in Changeling coming up in my own games. Um, the idea of, of Count Arnout and Heliquin would make for also very good NPC type characters for um, the Scarecrow Ministry that appear in Changeling the Lost. Also, if you want to go keep with the idea of the dead, um, he would make possibly an interesting uh, Caraboy for uh, Geist. Mm. Because he's obviously transcended being just a ghost. He's become this amalgam of an, of an idea and a ghost. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, nice. Um, I did want to give another shout out to Wilfred the Hairy. Um, I yeah. found uh, the perfect name for my next Dark Ages character there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Arnaud of Villanova. Um, so this is the other guy. When you when you mentioned uh, the Clamps are now, and when we were talking about the secret frequency, I got very excited and thought maybe they're the same guy, you know, that we've stumbled onto the same uh, uh, kind of character independently. But it turns out there is another uh, alchemist figure, this Arnau de Villanova, um, and he he appears. He's a real world figure um, who apparently did exist, a renowned physician of his time. Who uh, appears as an NPC, an antagonist in. Urban Legends, the very mm. first story in Urban Legends, uh, the one about the, uh, the the kidney eater, the kidney theft. So, in addition to the, the stuff that's found on his write-up in Urban Legends, which is, you know, there's a little kind of potted history of his real life there. He's got his own page on Wikipedia, so you can you can hunt him down there. Um, but when I was researching him, I found some more really interesting stuff on a forum that was about the Knights Templar. And in there, he was noted as being the physician for three separate kings. Uh, oh, wow. An, an outspoken enemy of the Inquisition and actually suffered under them uh, at one point. And he also summoned the Pope uh, and a, a number of these kings to attend the imminent arrival of the Antichrist, uh, supposedly, <laughs> supposedly born in 1290. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different hooks you can throw in there, this quite highly placed figure. Um, now, he died when his, uh, when his ship sank en route to answer a summons from the Pope that he knew to be a trap. Um, so in the world of darkness, of course, uh, he's faked his own death by shipwreck there. Uh, and mm. it occurred to me, um, you know, they could be the same man, but this is before you mentioned the original counter, I know, never existed at all. Uh, well, was... you could go down a similar route, I guess. It depends if this alchemist's uh, origin is kind of, is dubious as well, because um, yeah. the legend of Countar now dates the 11th century, so... Right. Well, this is this is what came came to mind next. Is if they're this, if they are the same man or linked in some way, there's a, a recurring myth about alchemists being able to possess the secret of immortality. Um, mm. Legends of Nicola and Petronella Flamel, for example, still being alive in India in the 1700s, and then another appearance of them in uh, the opera in Paris, um, almost a century later in the late 1700s, with a son they'd had in India. Um, so the idea of an alchemist who repeatedly fakes his own death and, and come back, comes back under different names or even several centuries later using the same name. Uh, I thought that could be... A well, if you really want to go down that route, then um, uh, the, the next later one you can go with is Cagliostro, who turns up apparently around the time of Casanova, uh, when Casanova mm. was around in Venice as well. So the idea, as you say, of 
of these immortal alchemists who have found the Philosopher's Stone or um, right, you know, exactly. the equivalent material. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm I guessing fl- you guys, I'm sorry, you guys have oh, not ahead. picked yeah. up World of Darkness uh, Immortals, have you? I don't I, know. I've not read it myself either, no. Yeah, you should take a look at it. It does carry over and it does, um, it has uh, one of the sections that John Sneed did was literally alchemists who have achieved immortality through the use of their alchemy. Mm. Oh, excellent. So, so in fact, a massive oversight on our part, then. That's really good. <laughs> you know, I don't know that there was a book that got widely spread around. Yeah, I haven't, I've seen a copy, but I haven't, I haven't, uh, haven't picked it up. Um, so um, is, this, is this the kind of thing that you would find a use for in any of your games, Philomena? Oh, absolutely. Well, um, aside from the fact that I wrote Immortals, I do love throwing at players things that don't fit within their understanding of the world of darkness. So, we're all vampires, we all know how vampires work, that's not a big deal, nothing to worry about. Well, what is this guy? I've seen him several times in the last several hundred years, he's not one of us, what is he? I, I mm. love the use of something that doesn't fit, and therefore their normal solutions don't necessarily work out of hand. Yeah. yeah. I completely yeah. love doing that to players. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of the character uh, Hob Gadling in the Sandman comic book series, who's a, who's a guy who just more or less decides not to die uh, and has these um, recurring... I, I want to say we have a the third or the last chapter in the book has a lot of like oddball, one-off, strange immortals with no explanation. And I believe that a guy who just decided not to because it was gauche, it was one of the, the general references. Um, and I did body thieves or people who hop from body to body to remain immortal like Fallen, no, what's the movie? I'm not sure what it was. But, yeah, Fallen, um, Denzel Washington. That, yeah. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that sort of idea, but then I had, I think I wrote one of the meanest powers in the World of Darkness, because one of the things they can do is, they can steal willpower, they can steal this, that, and the other thing from you. They can also steal your powers, so you have your player characters running around, and they're like, oh, well, no problem, I'm going to use you know Vigor, and I'm going to beat him down, until they find that they don't have Vigor anymore, and then he throws them across the room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was what I did. Okay, cool. Do we have any old world darkness kind of uses for this? Uh, I think the possibility of having some oddball character who, you know, as Philemon has said, doesn't fit any of the established categories works equally well across either edition or version of the game lines. And really, in old world of darkness, that has a stronger punch because there are not as many books for oddballs. You know, yeah. in the world of darkness, there's a lot more room for, oh, well, these are monsters, and they don't fit what you are. Um, yeah. Old World of Darkness seemed like it defined everything much more clearly. Oh, well, if it's this, it is a vampire, and that's all there is to it. If it's this, it's a werewolf, and that's all there is to it. So having something that doesn't fit would feel more more powerful in an Old World of Darkness game. Definitely. Beyond the category of bygones, Old World of Darkness certainly seemed to be... Well, there was certainly an expectation of, well, it's going to have to be one of these five or six things, you know, so we just, let's figure it out. <laughs> right. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, what was it? What was the endless question? Uh, what supernatural is uh, Rasputin? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. I'd rather have 20 different versions than one set in stone. Anyway. See, now he can be an immortal alchemist, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there we have, yeah, uh, numerous uh, Arnau de Villanovas, or Count Arnaus, um, ready and strange for your game. And with that, let's move on over to the Old World of Darkness segment. Classic World of Darkness. So, yes. V20, 
Wow. I got my copy open, my copy of the PDF, and uh, this full-color artwork, awesome. Those chapter headers were fantastic. I loved every single one of those. They are brilliant. They are really, really good. Yeah. Uh, the thing is just I, I can't really kind of begin to put words together properly to explain how completely excited I was when the, you know, when the link arrived in my inbox. Uh, an incredible book, an incredible piece of work, jam-packed with, with more Vampire the Masquerade goodness than you can really kind of take in at one sitting. I'm still going through this thing, finding uh, new little references here and there. I discovered a section at the back the other day that describes what happens when a vampire tries to eat a hit mark from Mage. <laughs> it's just fa- <laughs> it's fantastic. I mean, there's the level of detail that's gone in. Uh, f- you know, goes right the way back to to the uh, to the first release. You know, to Vampire the, the Masquerade soft cover. Um, to to wit, it opens with the, the letter from uh, from Dracula to to Mina. Iconic piece. Really nice to see. I that. guess what we what we could do here, and I can put forward because obviously I haven't ordered V20 hard copy, and I've yet to get the PDF. Is how would you two sell me on V20? Because obviously I got into Vampire the Masquerade with uh, Revised Edition, and from mm-hmm. there I got into Mage and you know played those until you know those saw their end and went into Requiem and so forth, and now you know a New World of Darkness whore. But so, what would you say would be the selling point of the V20 PDF? What what uh, bits would really kind of um, uh, stand out amongst the entire book because obviously there, there's a lot that I'm familiar with already but what yeah. things would you say have changed enough mm-hmm. to make it really not only go wow that's, that's, that's really different but wow that's different and such a, a massive improvement maybe or makes the game oh, even yeah. more playable yeah. I, I think I can field this one Mark yeah, go ahead, Mike. if you'll let me no, shoot. I, there's two things that I'd say but you go ahead first man well I'm going to say it straight up Eddie Webb ruined celerity. <laughs> Thank you so much. He fixed yes. it, really. Oh. Okay. That, that itself no, makes the game more playable. Saved our games. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. celerity now works by not it's more being like, it's like, old yeah, celerity. It's more like the Dark Ages version. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's good to know, because I like Dark Ages mode. Uh, Dark Ages uh, Vampire, so yeah, cool. Okay, so Celerity, that's a good selling point. What else? Well, for me, there's not so much, uh, like, my, you know, you, you said what's new and improved, you know, and might give a great example. But for me, I, I'd take a step back, and the two things that I would say are comprehensiveness and atmosphere. So there's there's no... I'm not honing in on a specific thing there. The, on the comprehensive level, it doesn't have everything, but my God, you wouldn't notice. Um, there's so much in there that you come. Every time I take a look at it, I come away kind of just sort of feeling bloated with mm. in, incredible cool stuff that's leaping off the page at me. Uh, and you are aware, you know, that there's stuff missing. Um, the the Tama Hera, for example, huge fans of them on the show, uh, and they've kind of they've got a slightly uh, thinner. Um, thinner spread than, than other sects and other groups might have. Uh, and there's you know, a couple of little things that you might want to have seen here and there that, that aren't particularly in there. Not all of the thaumaturgies in and what have you. But, you like I say, when you're reading it, you wouldn't notice. Because the amount of stuff that is in there, you could run any number of Vampire Chronicles until until the cows come home. Um, so yeah, 
absolutely that would be the, the number one thing. It just has so much stuff on and every single page there's little things, little nuggets, little examples, ideas and, and callbacks to earlier elements in the game just leaping out at you all over the place. Really, really, really rich, dripping in detail. Uh, which leads me on to the second thing, which is the atmosphere. Uh, and you know, it's not quite revised, it's not quite second edition, it's not quite first edition, uh, but it's somehow distilled all the best bits out of those and put them together. So you, you, you kind of have this this first edition feel where, you know, you can hear the Crow soundtrack playing in the background, and uh, and it's it's got the, the broad spread that the second edition brought in, you know, the, the different way of looking at the Sabbat and the way of the mm. independent clowns working and all the different possibilities for the Asamites and, and what have you. And on top of that, you've got revised with the approach of let's take the rules and we'll tighten them up. And the rules have been tightened up massively across the board. Uh, but also they've kind of gone, you know, that crazy meta plot that ran rampant throughout all the world. Let's dial that back a bit and we'll put it over here on this sidebar. And you don't have to worry about the Ravnos antediluvian if you don't want to. And maybe yeah. the Gangler Camarillo, maybe they aren't. And they've, they've kind of tagged all of these big meta plot developments with a sort of, you know, with a big optional sticker. Um, which really means, yeah, exactly. So you can kind of take it as you like, you know. And and some of them have been stripped down to just a throwaway sentence in the clan write-ups. Uh, so it's not really thrust in your face. And if it's there, it's there to find. Was, but if you don't want it, yeah. Gonna say on the on the count of um of the uh, atmosphere of the game. So you feel it has it also feel like it's somehow also matured that it it can kind of retains some of the stylistic and thematic elements that were there because it was you know, written in the 90s and the turn of the millennium, yet still still it keep those elements and, and retain certain stylish, stylistic kind of parts of it, uh, even though yeah. the game is allowing you to play it in a contemporary setting. Sure, and, and there are no, there are nods to the you know to the, to the modern world, uh, and references to technology and society mm. and culture and what have you. But at the same time, the the game is kind of you know standing under a broken neon light in fishnet stockings and mascara, you know, yeah. beckoning to an alleyway. <laughs> it really has that feel coming off the page. Um, so it's excellent the way they managed to do that. And they, you know they've described it in their pre-release material as sitting at the bar and talking over the old games with you, and it actually feels like that. The opening few pages. Our opening couple of pages are testimonials from fans and former employees, a little paragraph, you know, mm. like about eight, eight or nine per page saying, this is why this game is awesome. And you, you read a couple of pages of that and a couple of intros. So it sets you up and gets you in the mood even before you start hitting the, uh, you know, what is a role-playing game section. Although admittedly, they've, cool. they've, actually, they've actually left that bit out more or less, which, you know. I would say then, knowing that celerity has been, has been fixed and all those things, which clan would you say feels like it's had the best has improved the most so it fits with the concept or is even more playable than it ever was mm, I, I, I have one but Mike I want to hear yours first so I don't embarrass myself <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a good question because I haven't read all of the uh, all the clan write ups mm. but I think they did a very good job with the with the Ravnos yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's really high quality and I also liked the, uh, I can't really say too much about the the uh, Giovanni write-up, but I love the art. It's uh, it's Isabella Giovanni in, like, her necromancy, like, ritualistic robe, <laughs> and she's looking down at her iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. And also, I'll say straight up, the uh, the artwork for the Chiasid makes them look so badass. Chiasid For guys that just sit around reading for hundreds of years, 
definitely want to play one. Yeah, they're great. Uh, for me, it's the Children of Osiris, um, which is you know that kooky Egyptian clan that was in Hunters Hunted uh, number one and uh, could walk around in sunlight and had powers to turn you back to mortal and stuff and then and then perhaps unsurprisingly vanished from Vampire Canon yeah <laughs> next, next twenty years because everybody was like oh, no that's that's a crap idea we won't have those no um, but they've yeah they've touched those up and uh, they've taken their discipline which um, is called Bardo if I recall correctly uh, and made it not you know, rubbish. And uh, as for for a vampire clan that you would probably never ever play or ever want to have in your game, they've made these guys uh, compelling, interesting, attractive, unusual, scary, because they are so out there and not particularly game breaking. So uh, yeah, I would um, I would go with Children of Osiris for my obscure point. Thank you. Hmm. Did they? Uh, I'm looking at the Bardo discipline right now, and. It still has the uh, restore humanity mm-hmm. uh, power at level one. Has that changed that much? Because uh, it still looks like it gives people their humanity dots back, which is a little out of theme, I'd say. Well, I think it's kind of it's in keeping with the overall concept of the clan as this, um, you know, we're more salubri than the salubri kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, you know, I, I enjoyed the overall tweak they gave to the to the way it comes across in the setting. Um, on the mechanical level of, of that particular one, I don't have my Hunters Hunted open in front of me right now, uh, so I can't compare them. But I'm, I'm sure it's better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool, cool. Yeah, other cool stuff. Um, well, I recommended a piece of artwork to Rich Thomas, and it's in the book, so that's pretty nice. Oh, did you which one? The, uh, it's on page 21 of the PDF. Okay. Yeah, it's a classic one. It's got uh, five vampires just sitting around this glowing. Oh, the the the, the, the brazier trash can thing. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yes. That's that right. Yes. Okay. Cool. Good. Yeah. Good call. It's a classic. It's a good one. I think it's the piece of artwork that really sold me on Vampire the Masquerade because uh, that uh, one chicky uh, on the on the left of the page. Mm-hmm. I just look at those boobs. <laughs> <laughs> They really pop out. Excellent. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> as you can see, this is a game for mature players. And uh, say, one thing I really want to, I just really want to mention. <laughs> Sorry, man. I was just going to say the Vampire the Masquerade is still retaining all its classic setting points there, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. But actually, I I really want to comment on the art because that's the first thing I went through. I just uh, went through every single page and looked at the art, and it's really high quality, but. I noticed with a lot of the classic artwork, the black and white stuff that they brought back from older books, a lot of it's very gothic in nature. There's not too much of the punk elements. There's definitely punk elements in some of the newer uh, color artwork. You can definitely see that in like some of the clan portraits and the like. But a lot of the uh, the old black and white stuff is it's got like you know vampires up in skyscrapers or uh, uh, the classic like kind of looking out into the distance. Yeah. I just felt that was kind of interesting. I'm not sure if uh, that's the kind of artwork that spoke more to people when they looked back at Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, if maybe they weren't as interested in the punk elements, or I'm really just curious, like why that was. Well, I, those are definitely the pieces that spoke to me uh, when I was looking through the book, and also if I if I think back to the to the artwork that stood out, you know, back in the day, those are the ones that that spoke to me. Uh, I think more than the, the the punky elements, and I certainly think out of the world of darkness game is vampire the masquerade first edition was more gothic than punk um 
um, overall, that's that's definitely the feel I got from it. Mm. But yeah, it's some interesting choices. I'm looking forward to seeing what what they do uh, with uh, with the as yet unannounced, by the way, uh, Mage twentieth anniversary. Uh, so I was looking through the Mage first edition core book the other day, and there's just you know, World of Darkness has this kind of um, stereotype attached to it of guys with katanas. There's like 13, <laughs> or four, 13 or 14 different pictures of people leaping about with katanas in Mage First Edition. You know, it's like <laughs> they weren't making it up. It's really there. You know, I've got two. I've got three. I've got four katanas and a machine gun. Okay, great. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, slightly off topic. I've been kind of wondering about that, the whole trench coat and katanas kind of thing. Because you could definitely see it in, in two movies. Uh, the Crow, of course, has... Uh, Brandon Lee running around in the trench coat and a katana, yeah. and also, of course, Highlander, Highlander. which yeah. was uh, the the classic movie that no one saw in theaters. Um, I did. Yeah, those two. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Cool. I just recently uh, watched the um, Highlander anime, um, which is by the uh, same guys that did uh, uh, Ninja Scroll, and I'll say this. If you're going to watch anything to do with Highlander, either watch that anime or possibly the TV series because it has some interesting ideas in there. That's it. <laughs> is that the, the kind of dystopian future anime thing? Uh, yeah. It, again, it does the mm-hmm. typical thing where they take Highlander, do a little bit of retconning. It's essentially the same story, but it's done a million times better. I haven't seen it. Cool. I'll check that out. Bit off topic. Great. Anyway. Um... <laughs> <laughs> So do we have anything else to discuss with uh, Vampire the Masquerade 20th Anniversary Edition? Yeah, I think the question is, where do you stop? I mean, it's just, like I said, every time I open the book, there's this new amount of amazingness leaps off the page. They've done such a good job with this. And now any time the postman drives by in the street outside, I'm like at, like at the window, is it here? Is it here? But I don't think they ship yet you know, for a couple of weeks. I'm not shipping, so. Oh, excellent, excellent. So with that, I guess we'll move on over to the new World of Darkness segment. World of Darkness 2.0. All right, guys. So, what are we going to be talking about today? Mage, more specifically, the Mage Chronic Mage Chronicles Guide. Yeah. Yes. So, so this has been out been out for a little while, um, and hmm. we thought it would be about you know about time we gave a little bit of coverage on the show. So, actually, it's been out for a couple of years. Looking at the date here, 2009. Um, it's a massive joint work by you know a dozen different authors um, covering a whole variety of elements for your mage the awakening game um, overall it's it's generally targeted at the storyteller but has a number of elements that make it of of use uh, to players as well so uh, yeah. as a player you know you, you it's worthwhile picking it up but as a storyteller it's also worthwhile um, you know, letting your players take a look at this um, in particular. Yeah. I'll just give a quick overview, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go into it in a bit more detail. It opens up with a, a basically rules hacks for, for playing a mage in different genres. Um, it follows that up with a chapter on ways to just change just the magic system as opposed to the overall setting itself. Just, you know, what if magic was weird science? Uh, what if it was... What if it's psychic powers? Um, chapter three is this is what's useful, I think, primarily for players. Um, it's yeah. uh, different ways to build your character, and um, actually quite an interesting look at uh, different ways of getting hooks and uh, and uh, background elements for your character. There's some stuff on just general advice on running mage games, uh, and then a, a, like a, there's like 15 of them sample chronicle outlines from uh, the authors of the book. Uh, you know, different off the wall chronicle concepts for your Mage: The Awakening game. 
Yeah, there's quite a lot in there, and um, I would definitely say, for, yeah, that the third chapter for players just looking at it, it's I would say it's very useful because Mage is such a, a vast game, and there are so many options for players for what they could play. It's quite a useful uh, chapter, a, quite a tool really to help kind of um, create a, a plan, uh, a guide to um, to really how the group of characters fit together and you know how to balance all the skills together and so the cabal can actually operate rather than finding they're pretty much useless at 50% of stuff because they've all specialized in all this all these other things so um but it's quite a comprehensive book um yeah and just to just to highlight on what you're saying there chris with the the the, the putting the cabal together i think this is something that uh, and you, you don't see this advice, I think, anywhere near as often as you need to in uh, in role-playing games, which mm. is that you know you need to decide on what the party or cabal or whatever you want to call it is going to be about. Uh, you know, I, I strongly believe there should be some kind of unifying theme to stop you having, you know, this uh, a paladin, an assassin, and uh, a witch hunter walk into a bar and head off to the caves of chaos kind of thing you know the the and so with this book focusing closely in upon here's a way to get your cabal to hang together from the outset um is yeah that, that's almost worth the price of admission in and of itself yeah it's the idea of having um it, the term used quite a lot is the idea of a group template and the the interesting thing that they also bring up is it's not just they don't just give you again guys on uh type of like sample characters you can you can kind of play in the game and and, uh, and styles of magic you can use in the game because there's a whole bit on on start on how how that all happens. There's actually quite a good discussion of how the rules of character creation work and how you you make you you use those best. And it's and a wonderful even just a very simple few lines of advice upon what a dot in a skill really means. And again, you don't often see that for many of the other games, and so it makes you realise that if you've got a dot in a skill, that's great because you're now rolling quite a few dice. You're on average going to get a success. And it's really more about where you need to put the dots in order to start doing things, especially when your mages have powers that are very heavily tied to skills because of the way that uh, ropes work. So yeah, um, exactly. It's, that kind of rule discussion is really important. Laying the mathematics behind the crunch out uh, gives the storyteller the power to make an informed decision, you know, on mm. how his game runs. And I think an addition gives the players a, a real perspective on well, what does strength two mean, you know, what does academics mean. Uh, yeah, it's important to have. Now, the next chapter, just just to kind of continue with these two chapters, building character, and chapter four is called Mage Chronicles, has some solid advice um, on then you know once once you've got the cabal together, how does the game go? Uh, and yeah. There's a gr I mean the thing that opens with is fantastic uh, is the tier system from Hunter, um, yeah. imported into Mage. So you know the tier one, two, three, um, local, regional, and, and national or global or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it gives you a great look at how you would incorporate that three tier system into your Mage game. Um, there's a a great description, uh, a great analysis, sorry, on how to deal with characters in your game, mages, who can just simply cast a time spell to find out the future, or these powerful divinations. How do you deal with, with characters who can cast and access powerful divinatory magic without it wrecking your game? There's a good look at that. 
And there's also a really interesting uh, analysis on how to run games for master level characters. You know, so your characters with with four and five dots in their uh, in their various arcana. How are you going to hang those together? And then that's followed up by these these various kind of sample chronicles. Um, now the point that the reason I'm just kind of focusing on this uh, mm. is to make the point that these these two chapters, chapter three and, and the first half of chapter four, they are real meat and potatoes, uh, useful information that you can apply to any game you're running. You know, as, yes. as a mage mage uh, storyteller, and you know most other games too. Really, you get some inspiration there, um, and that's the kind of stuff actually that I believe should have been 60 to 70% of the book as opposed to 30, kind of, you know, the, the small page count that is. And that's not to diminish what else is in the book because it's great, but and kind of here's my long-winded rambly point, um, is that chapter one and chapter two and the last half of chapter four um, essentially are presenting variants. You know, here's yes. uh, five or six different ways to mod your campaign. Are you going to run a mage pulp game or are you going to run a mage noir or is it going to be action horror or is it going to be epic magic? You know, chapter one covers all these different genres. Uh, chapter two says, well, what if magic came from drug use? Or what if magic was really enlightened science? Or what if magic was really psychic powers? Or what if it was Faustian sorcery? You know, um, so in fact, what they're doing is they're saying, OK, you've got your standard mage game. Now, here's a different here's a whole bunch of ways to change it. Um, and this this is this kind of stuff is fantastic. It's great. Um, but what struck me about a Chronicler's Guide is I would have thought maybe there wants to be more in here about running Chronicles, you know, mm. by and I don't want to say by the book, but I mean running Chronicles, making the standard setting work as opposed to I, showing us ways. Here's here's different ways to change the standard setting. I'd have kind of thought, well, come on, can you not just give me something which shows me how to make the most of what I've got as opposed to turning it into something else? So while the, these variants are fantastic, and I, you know, I could use any number of them, for, for someone who's kind of starting out in Mage, uh, I, I kind of wonder if they're going to be superfluous. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I, I kind of found the Mage Chronicles Guide, i say it, it felt a bit disappointing going through the first half and then once you get to the bit on how to to uh, you know balance characters off each other and then as I say the bit on uh, on chronicle design and how to how to rein in what what your pl- uh, what your game is going to be because mage when you open up that blue book of of golden text and headaches is <laughs> is is a difficult game to realize what are you going to do with it and this is the same for any chronicle and uh, to, to put it to, to give a, another good comparison many of the problems you come up against in running a good mage chronicle are the same problems you come up with in uh, and that I have come up with in uh, recently running a good game uh, a good chronicle for exalted when you've got a setting that it has so many options so much diversity that they could be dealing with spirits one day the undead the other and then things are very similar to them, and then just generally mortals and other weirdness and science. You know, it's um, you could literally go anywhere with the game, and you know, your story can quickly fall apart and be this uh, non. It can lose it can lose its sense of direction. And yeah. the the advice that comes in the Chronicles Guide is great, but it's presented. It feels like it's presented too late because. As, as far as I, I, as far as I go with like setting hacks, which is pretty much what chapter one is all about, and chapter two, of course, they're great, but I don't think they're 
they're only they're not worth the paper they're written on until you really understand the game the basic game better. And yeah, agree, any yeah. person that any person that can run a good chronicle and understands the mechanics well enough and how to tweak it will generally come up with many of the tweaks they've done on their own. You may you may go, well Mage is a good game so I could run something that's equivalent to where everyone's mutants. Then fine, yeah. do that. But most good storytellers will come to that conclusion. And I think the Chronicles Guide, as you say, would be better at giving good advice for beginners. Right, and exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's the old kind of, you know, the old, I guess it's the RPG publisher's dilemma that once you know how to play the game, you don't need the books anymore. Yeah. Um, and this, yeah, the Major Chronicles Guide, uh, I think, f- falls down in not providing enough uh, advice for beginners. Not that it's not there, um, but it's mm. you know it's it's a it's a matter of amounts. Um, I, I you know and I, maybe it is intended for for chroniclers for storytellers who've been running Mage for a while because it it came out when Mage was what five years old. You know five years yeah. into the game you got you finally get this book, um, which admittedly is better than Ascension Managed. You know, oh. <laughs> although it was although it was a fantastic book, the Ascension Storytellers Guide didn't come out until uh, I think shortly before the apocalypse. Uh, um, yeah, it was right towards the end. Again, it had yeah. many great ideas that could be applied beyond Mage, but it was too little, too late, really, to um, yeah. help push it forward. Uh, maybe, maybe it's the case, and we, we touched on this actually um, a couple of episodes ago when we did the rapid fires. Something that y- you and I kept mentioning when we were talking about uh, Mage the Awakening was this is a fantastic game, um, and it actually works best if you buy these other four or five books. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, and I'm wondering if the Mage Chronicles Guide was written with that in mind. You know, people will already have read Sanctum and Sigil and Time of the Watchtowers and um, uh, the other one, which name is always escaping me. Uh, Secrets of the Ruined Temple. No, uh, no. Watchtowers, Tome of Watchtowers, and uh, God, I did this yeah. last episode. I couldn't remember the name <laughs> Secret of the Ruin Temple, and now I can't remember the name of this one. But anyway, that book that tells you all about Mage Society and how it all works. The you know maybe they've assumed that people have read all these and have taken on board the information that was scattered across those, and maybe it would be cheating the customers a bit to reprint advice that's you know scattered over a handful of books. But I don't know. I kind of think a, a beginning Mage storyteller would would like to have it all in one place. Um, Anyway, that look. That said, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to kind of crap on the first few chapters of the book. So yeah. I, you know, I'm going to take a moment here to highlight why why they are in fact awesome, even though they're perhaps uh, you know not the best the best choice for these books for for the Mage Chronicles. They are in fact fantastic. Um, so the, uh, yeah, it provides it provides setting hacks in chapters one to allow you to run action horror games. You know, bullets, gore, fire. It says the um, so rules yeah. in that. Again, that first system, that first setting hack, brilliant for World of Darkness in general, I found. Yeah. Um, it really added a, a kind of like a, for the listeners, it's kind of like it, it allows you to be more actively involved in how combat is run. You have more, you have a few more choices in, in the actions you can take and Stunting. their effect. Yeah, you have stunts in there. So I kind of appreciated that one. Um, Critical hit table. Uh, mm. Yeah. Um, what other set, uh, setting hats did they have for there? They had, um, you were going to list pulp? them just then, so continue. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah uh-huh. Awakening is a pulp, a pulp game. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, that's kind of interesting, the old kind of early uh, early 20th century pulp fiction. Um, 
and echoing off of that, uh, there's noir in there as well, which then went mm -hmm. on to get its, its own rule book. Um, epic fantasy, uh, which is kind of interesting. That's got some really fun uh, rule hacks there. Um, you know, sleepers don't cause uh, cause it to be vulgar and yeah. uh, you know less backlash and. Uh, Mages need vulgar magic tools for vulgar magic, and then a bunch of cool uh, hooks for that. Faustian sorcery, uh, which is you know great if you're into uh, into that element of folklore and the magic history. Um, and oh, here we go. Um, Lucid sleepers is another one that's quite interesting. Uh, that plays on the idea that magic is actually becoming more prevalent, and it's not so much of a secret. Mm. Um, that's kind of fun, and uh, that name checks Harry Potter. So uh, you know that's uh, that's good if you're into that kind of thing. Is that Go the ahead. entirety of that section? Because then the next section is some major hat. There's, there's, oh, there's yeah. a thing about a punk game, so you know, and that can, uh, I suppose, if you want to get a bit of the uh, the punk feel back in from the old world of darkness, there's some stuff in here that can uh, can allow you to uh, to play with that. Um, you know, real kind of DIY street magic. Um, and yeah, there's the noir section at the back. Uh, but then, like you say, yeah, chapter two, uh, mirror magic, uh, which was mm. uh, a great. A great bit to read. So, I mean, in there, there's such things as you can only do magic because you have to be on drugs to do it, and depending upon the flavor of drug you've taken, that allows you to do a particular type of access to a particular type of magic. Um, uh, there's also a form of uh, a science where it's all just science, so again, it's the idea of bringing back something that's more akin to the uh, technocracy from old order darkness. Uh, well, I should yeah. be saying classic world of darkness. Um, uh, there evil. was, yeah, um, and that was that was nice to see put in there. Uh, it wasn't; they weren't really getting to the idea of truly weird, weird, weird science. It was more getting towards kind of more technocratic idea of science that, that was so cutting edge. Where do you see the transition between science and and uh, magic? Um, they also had uh, psionics, I believe, um, that was and. Really cool. Yeah, again, there's a lot of good hacks to the reason for magic. And again, I, I would say they're not they're the things you would do to not reinvigorate the way you play mage, but more to how to use the mage rules to replicate a, a different kind of uh, setting, which yeah. is it, fine because mage pretty much, much allows you to replicate any form of, uh, of powers out there. Well, I think the, I psy the, the psychic the psychics thing was interesting because it's conspicuous by its absence from this you know from both ascension and awakening core. There's nothing mm. which overtly screams out this magic is psychic powers. You know, it's it's in as as you know in a way in ascension it's in as a uh, a way to look at your paradigm, I suppose. And you do get it to a degree in um, in awakening, but you know again through the filter of of uh, the Atlantean truths. Um, yeah. But seeing it actually called out here as, no, let's do the whole thing as psychic powers. I thought that was really interesting. Um, C.J. Carella's witchcraft has got a, a, for want of a better word, um, a tradition um, that's psychic in there. Um, and I'd kind of fold that, folded that into my Ascension games. But seeing this here, you know, laid out in standard World of Darkness terminology was really, really cool. It gives a different flavor of, of psychic abilities and doing psionics in World of Darkness because they've already covered that in... Um, uh, which World of Darkness book is that one? Um... Second sight, yeah. Second That's sight, it. of course, yes. yes. Just, well, you've I'm got psionics, <laughs> but that one, of course, is based on the idea of using merits, um, yeah. a, a merit-based buying system to buy the the powers that allow you to do the things. Whereas, of course, mage is using you're using psionics based upon the the mage 
Arcana system. So, yeah, it, I think it's good to see system hacks that allow you to replicate things in different ways. Nice bit on ritual magic too, making mm. all magic uh, ritually based, which is which is kind of fun. And what's nice about some of these rules is you c- you can fold them back into your main game. You know, if you, yeah. if your game is a little bit messy and doesn't you know hew completely close to to to, to Kanon, um, it's easy to kind of be like, well, we've got a you know a bunch of mages who aren't Atlantean in origin, and they their magic is ritual. You know, um, these, these the so-called barbarian wizards that are referred to in the the Atlantean backstory. Or, or if you're an Ascension player and you're looking for inspiration for your cult of ecstasy or, or technocracy or uh, virtual adepts, you know, the the genius, the enlightened genius science magic is is quite fun for that too. The uh, other thing I was going to say is the um the 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 magic hacks are, are useful as inspiration that they give uh, uh, for Mage the uh, Awakening because of course though Mage the Awakening does not have paradigm like Mage the Ascension, it does have the idea of magical style. So it allows you to again yeah. kind of go, oh, well, how would my mage do his magic? What are his tools for doing it? Even though the paradigm is Atlantean magic, and that's how the entire of Mage the Awakening works, that doesn't stop you, your character having a particular style of um, and the way they perform their magic. So you, know, you can go down the science route and that kind of, just even reading that, even though you're not using the rules per se, it gives you kind of a good feeling for how your character would operate. If you look at the rulebook for uh, Mage the Awakening Magical Traditions, there's a section in there on magic through entheogen use. Uh, which you know is, is is a whole mini paradigm based around using entheogenic plants and psychedelic plants uh, to to make your magic work. So the 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 magic as drug use in here ties in really nicely to that. Um, so yeah, like you say, you can build on the idea of magic styles or non-Atlantean magical traditions and use the stuff in this uh, in this book to to flesh that out. Um, but again, as as you said, it's something that is probably more use to uh, to a mage storyteller who's been who's been around the block a few times, um, as the saying goes. So so yeah, um, a, a mixed bag I think. And I, I had I had a similar uh, I think it was Second Sight actually. I had a similar comment with Second Sight in that the stuff in there is incredible. And then at the end you get a whole chapter on Cthulhu. Uh, yeah. Well, well, aren't we supposed to be playing you know gritty street magicians here? And and now there's an elder thing trying to eat my face. Um, and I couldn't find anything wrong with the chapter because uh, it was brilliant. But I thought, why is that in here? Uh, and I, I get that. I, th- I almost think this this book is trying to be two books. You know, one mm. is a Here's a here's a toolkit hack for your mage game, and the other one is here's a section of great advice. So um, it's a bit um, it's a bit proto mirrors in a way, isn't it? Yes, um, yeah. With I with agree. the with the setting hacks. So um, yeah. I guess that's and you know of course you know they came up with uh, they brought out Mage Noir. So um, it's uh, I guess you can say Mage Chronicles Guide is half crunch well not crunch but half great advice and half experimental. Yeah. So, so in, in a nutshell, if you're looking to buy this book, be aware that you are going to get 50% setting hacks and magic hacks, mm-hmm. and 50%, 50% fantastic advice. And if that's what you're after, you know, and if that'll make your game better, then you won't find anything that disappoints you here. But if you're a new, a newbie-made storyteller, you may find a little bit of is uh, is perhaps not so much use for your for your immediate game. But you may find that it provides inspiration, you know, for games a year down the line or what, 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 what have you. So. Um, yeah, it's not a, not a book I regret getting hold of, but uh, it's definitely worth calling out its its various um, caveats, I guess. 
So, Mark, do you think that these, uh, like, the Mage Chronicles Guide and the Forsaken Chronicles Guide, which have all these setting hacks and, uh, and, and changes to the core game, should they be marketed as, uh, like, under a different name? Maybe the uh, Mage story hacking guy yeah and that kind of thing <laughs> i don't know if you need to go that far uh, you know i would uh, i i picked it up anyway right without really kind of looking too deeply into what i was getting but you know being a mage fan like that um but i think it would it would be incumbent upon uh, the white wolf guys to make it clear what's in the book that it, you know this is not just going to be something that is going to pump your your new mage game but it has hacks in it for the experienced mage storyteller so you know maybe in hindsight it's not a bad thing it's a book that tries to be of use to a storyteller whatever you know in whatever kind of phase of his uh, storytelling career he's in i guess for want of a better phrase so there's stuff in there for the beginner there's stuff in there for the experienced old hand and there's stuff in there for someone who's just looking for a, a fresh injection um so yeah you know maybe it's a more of a, of a thematic palette than a, a laser like point of focus um <laughs> i think it's more in the uh in uh, i don't want to say marketing whatever it is whatever that thing is called when you tell people what's in the book but you're not just trying to get them to buy it you're actually trying to give them information i think that's really marketing just i suppose telling the truth is another way of calling it i'd, exp- <laughs> I'd expected to see it called out for what it is um, what is interesting what i thought was really amusing about this book when it came out um, is it has an afterword at the end um, by bill bridges oh, yeah. uh, which talks about you know we've come to the end of the major chronicler's guide and you know and th- there's something about the tone which is a bit like maybe mage is finishing now and maybe you're not and there's they're sort of talking a little bit about the transition to you know to digital initiative and print on demand and stuff but my god the hysteria that erupted on the internet with this afterwards oh I mean, yeah awakening is it's finished it's dead bill bridges has killed it <laughs> a good three weeks of this and <laughs> the developers coming on and going no no not really that's not what it means go read it again and no no it says it's ended look it says it right there Okay, great. So, yeah, (laughs) a a mage book that that generates its own flame wars. uh, It's kind of, you know, it's required, really, I think. Nice. So so we've got uh, the core three games of the Chronicler's Guides. Does that mean the Promethean Chronicler's Guide is coming up next? Huh? Huh? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. If a game needed it. If a game needed it, yeah, I would I would say uh, Promethean could do with one. Uh, I would even say, I would even say, uh, I would say really all of them deserve one uh changeling based on my own experience now having run a full chronicle and going back to doing a one shot before i move um that the, again it's a game that has so many options and um that being a game where there's so much in the core book that you can use and you'll just never get around to using half the rules could really a lot of these games could deserve a really good true Chronicler's Guide where they are giving you advice on how to run a game and at what scale are you running the game not system but with with but with less focus on system hacks and so forth because um, yeah Promethean's a game which I keep looking at and going I want to run it but again I, I still don't feel like I've read enough advice on how to, how to really do it yeah, I think the system hacks thing is interesting because I love system hacks. You know, my my own games, I can't leave them alone. I thought, well, I think I'll change Paradox a bit. And what if Resonance worked this way instead? You know? Yeah. Uh, and I get a huge amount of use out of these things. Um, but, I, I, you know, I wonder to what degree, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the target market for this kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I just, I think, yeah, if I'm, if if I try and imagine, I've never read a mage book before, and somebody plonks that down, and here you go, this is this is your guide to running the game. Uh, I'd be a little bit like, uh, what? What the hell? 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a lot to take on board. Um, so yeah, like like I said before, I'm not you know I don't want to sound like I'm kind of ragging on the book in any in any way because uh, there's nothing in here that's bad. Um, it's just an interesting kind of development choice to uh, to mix up the uh, the advice in this way. I don't know, listeners, let us know what you think. Did Mage Chronicler's Guide uh, improve your game? Did you find it to be um, full of stuff that you can't use for another six years until you've you know read all these other books? <laughs> what do you think? Let us know. And Mark, where can they uh, send that email to? Darkadaysradio at gmail.com Cool. And also check us out on Twitter. I think we're uh, pretty much done with this episode. Um, of course, uh, we got the posters coming up. Uh, yep. Chris will be sure to include a link to that in the show notes. Yep. And Yeah. Uh, any any other closing remarks? Um, um, I'm going to get get to play Vampire next week for the first time in about 100 years. So I'm quite excited about it. <laughs> Awesome. Nice. Which flavor nice. of vampire? Oh, vampire the Masquerade is... V20, and I don't have to run it either. I can just pitch up and play. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I, as I said, I'm, uh, I'm uh, coming to the end of my Exalted Chronicle, and so I'll be going back into Changeling the Lost Venice and doing a uh, carnival-themed uh, one-shot, so um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that. It's going to push the plot onwards, but it's the last chance my players get to play Changeling with me, so... Huh. When is your move oh, actually uh, taking place? Uh, that's going to be start of December, so um, okay. I'm already kind of fishing around on the internet for finding out where do I go to find players, so yeah. it's going to be interesting. Uh, well, there's, there's plenty of gaming over on the continent, so you should be... Able oh, to... yeah, there is. I say, there, the, I say the continent, I mean, I mean, I mean Europe for our uh, non-English yeah. uh, listeners. There's plenty of there are plenty of local gaming stores in Germany already that I've found. There are there's at least one in every major city near me, including Excellent. the one I'll be in. So that's pretty cool. Good stuff. Well, you have to do a report on us on uh, on the German World of Darkness uh, gaming culture. He, yeah, yeah, that would be that would be quite good. It'd be good to see um, to find out their opinions of World of Darkness and. Um, Whatever, maybe even German language games I've got, which cover the kind of the horror genre, um, and what things turn up in that. Hmm. Well, weren't there like weren't there like um, foreign language editions of uh, you know like country specific source books? I was reading the other day that um, there was a, right. pa- a Paris yeah. a Paris by Night that was only released in France in French. Monde de Ténèbres France. Ooh. <laughs> There you go. Indeed. Cool. And there was uh yeah, there was two German books that were oh, right. German. Yep. Right, Chris, your mission should you should you choose to accept it. Find those and uh <laughs> translate and uh and give a give a review on them. Yeah. That's that's actually quite a good thing to do. <laughs> right. Alright, cool. I think that's it guys. Thank you very much and we'll see you all next time. Bye, folks. Bye.